0: Global Sport Matters presents, in collaboration with Columbia University Sports Management, the Sports Professors Podcast, where Professors Kenneth Shropshire and Scott Rosner discuss the 101 on what happened in sports business.
1: Hello and
2: welcome to the Sports Professors Podcast. We're a new podcast. I'm Scott Rosner, Columbia University, along with my friend, Former colleague, Ken Shropshire of Arizona State University, Global Sport Institute,
1: CEO. Ken, how are you doing today? Doing good. Uh, this is, uh, we should have the uh, Peaches and Herb theme song going, uh, Reunited. And it feels so good. Yeah, there, you know, I checked it out, but there's some lyrics to that song that would not be appropriate, uh, even in the 21st century, for, for the two of us uh, to, to use in describing ourselves. But, but the, the opening line of that song is, I was a fool to ever leave you, to ever leave your side. Me minus you is such a lonely ride. You, how do you, are you touched? I,
2: I mean, I, I'm a little bit clumped over here. You know, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, you know, it's uh, it's been a minute. For those of you who say, "Hey, haven't I heard these two turkeys together before somewhere?" Uh, we did indeed have a long-standing radio show—about
1: a five-year, uh, five-year run. I mean, yeah,
2: yeah, good, good, run. That's in the radio business. That's a long time um, on uh, what is now business radio. Uh, was previously uh, the, the Wharton Wharton Radio, uh, I believe, on Sirius XM. Uh, and then when we both moved on to greener pastures, uh, or to the desert, in Ken's case, uh, we, the sh- the show was uh, the show was ended. Uh, but really excited to bring it back at long last. We've talked about this for a while and different formats and different things that we could do, and so that our listeners are aware of what we're trying to do here in this podcast. Uh, so it's really uh, a look at the inside uh, news and our analysis on sports business and sports law issues from the places in which we sit. So the thought is to really have a uh, a meaningful, thoughtful, insightful conversation uh, that can be as short or as long as we would like it to be on all of the biggest issues going on in the sports industry. We'll bring it to you on a semi-regular basis, looks like a couple times a month as we get this all started. And really looking forward to it. And some irreverence thrown in as well from time (laughs) to time, and
1: as the situation calls for. So, I add to your your description, uh, Professor Rosner, (laughs) that in doing so, uh, people concerned about timeliness, we will try to make the conversation as Shakespearean as possible so that the topics will be topical, but we'll, we'll actually go deeper than you would get in most places, we hope about a lot of the background on how these things evolve and what's happened in the past. And, and uh, you know, there's some saying about past forecasting the future or future. You know. <laughs> a lot of the stuff is the same with different players, and we'll try to bring that out where we can.
2: Yeah, no, and it's like some of these we've seen before and are, and are, you know, it may think like this is unprecedented. It's it's never happened as you're talking about. Uh, but indeed, there's an analogous uh, scenario from somewhere in the past that we'll talk about. So we'll have a little bit of history just so our listeners understand the background of these various hot take stories and, and the moments of, of the day uh, that we're talking about. Uh, the other thing we should probably let our listeners know about, Ken, is our background together beyond the radio show and uh, our time together at the well, working I school. Him, I told him with
1: Peaches and Herb, you know, re- Yeah, re-
2: reunited. Re- reunited. <laughs> so Ken, Ken and I uh, have worked together and, and known each other uh, over 25 years at this point, frighteningly enough, uh, when I was a student at the University of Pennsylvania Brennan, Law School.
1: Brendan, our producer, is looking up saying, Wait a minute! I wasn't even born then, so
2: <laughs> that's exactly right. Brendan's like, there was a 1995. I, I didn't know that when that, that happened. Uh, so, whereas where we started in a, uh, I was Ken's teaching assistant, research assistant when I was a second and third year student in law school at Penn, and Ken was housed over at the Wharton School. Uh, eventually. Uh, Ken gave me my first shot at lecturing, uh, to a class. He was probably out somewhere consulting, you know, for, for a whopping sum and, uh, and everything else. And so he didn't want to cancel class, uh, but he had a client obligation in all likelihood. He asked me if I could lecture. And that was my aha moment that got me going down this uh, path of being a, a college professor and, and graduate school professor, uh, now based at Columbia and leading the sports management program there. So a lot of fun along the way, uh, you know, it's it, the relationship quite, quite honestly. So our, our, you know, our listeners know, and this will come through, uh, is evolved way beyond the professional to, uh, you know, a really deep, meaningful personal relationship for me. I can't speak for Ken. Uh, <laughs> I'm still, I'm still the TA, uh, and, you know, <laughs> Um, you know, doing this stuff. But uh, so really looking forward to sharing, you know, uh, our stories as well
1: uh, with you all during our time together. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I've been looking forward to this, this a lot I and mean, there's a lot going on. So, so Scott, why, why don't we get to it? I mean, what, what we'll uh, typically do is talk about, as we said, kind of the big topics, what's in the news in the day and then and tie it to some of our more historic understanding and try to give you, give you two or what we think is coming up uh, in in terms of what's sitting in the news. I mean, you know, what, for example, the Olympics will be with us for a while or not. We'll we'll sort of touch on that probably multiple times along the way, but Scott, what do you, what do you want to get going with uh, today?
2: Yeah. You know, I think what this is really about, you know, we think about what's happened first in The the past week in sports and there's all sorts of conversations going on uh, around the Olympic games Uh, was just on with someone in Japan who talking about the, you know, the scenario there and whether the Olympics are going to happen or not, Uh, you know, vaccination rates in the country being, you know, 5% or lower across the country. Is it okay uh, for the nation to host, uh, the Olympic games, certainly something that's been talked about a lot will continue to be talked about a lot going forward. Uh, we had the national football league release its schedule this week, and it's amazing what that has become as a, uh, as a news and, and publicized event. It's just in the same way as the draft, right? It's, it, you're taking some of the least exciting kind of perfunctory, Moments of this business and turning it into uh, a real sponsorable, sellable programming event. Right? Uh, amazing. Right? Uh, you know? Did you Did you watch that? Did you watch the schedule release, Ken?
1: I, I did not. You know, I, I uh, and you know, I do a lot of stuff with the NFL, so let me not be too hateful. I gave them my free time watching the draft. So, uh, you know, two, two drafts in a row. So. I decided the schedule release was was just a little bit little bit much for me, but yeah, it, it did. You know, it, it is something we watch this how the, the league and the leagues have found ways to you know, frankly, monetize what used to be the trivial, the, the idea that that you you know all these things you've got to think about what sponsorship is around these different releases. The, the draft is the big example of going from you know from zero to a hundred. And, and now the schedule release is is the next enterprise. I mean, one of the kind of midterm together, one of the projects that we we touched on uh, while we were at Wharton together was this whole Commissioner Goodell's idea of how do we become a $25 billion a year business and to think of different ideas uh, that could get them there. I, I don't think the schedule release was one specifically in the list of things that, that, that we came up with, but, but the whole concept of, uh, here are events that that fans clamor for, or that they don't know they'll clamor for, or or that you know, like a la tobacco companies, we can make them clamor for. Um, it, it fits perfectly with that, and and what we will see, of course, is other leagues following suit and and doing similar.
2: And it is amazing to turn this into a, a six month season into a three hundred sixty five day a year business. And so finding all of these moments along the way, like you said, we had looked at this a long time ago. I don't think, as you said, either one of us envisioned schedule release being a big piece of this. And now with an 18 uh, week season, you know, shoehorning six seventeen 17 games into 18 weeks, um, you know, the the some years, the consequences that this will have on the overall sports calendar beyond the NFL is really interesting, uh, but certainly always making news. A reminder to our listeners that we record this on a Thursday and we drop it on a Tuesday. So, indeed, there may be things coming out in the meantime that we haven't addressed yet, but rest assured, we
1: will certainly do so going forward as warranted. I see that radio experience coming out when you you do that. That's, that's very good. You know, you know old, 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 old habits die hard. I guess that, I that's, that's actually Scott's way of saying, don't think we're fools if all of a sudden the schedule has been drawn back in on Wednesday of next week and we didn't, we ref, didn't reference it. Yeah. That is exactly right. I want so, you, you mentioned the Olympics going, going first, Scott, I want, I want to go back to that. So, you know, if you're keeping track we talked about this, this schedule release. I want you to be uh, uh, Nostradamus for us on this one. Are the games going to happen?
2: I think the games are going to happen. I, I think clearly well, they're going to
1: happen. Well, as a qualifier, you had a qualifier in there. Are right. just, just you're on the witness stand? Straightforward, yes. Okay. Yes, I okay.
2: think they. Now I'll explain. Now you're qualifier. Now I'm qual. I'll qualify. Uh, I think that they are going to happen. I think it's going to look different, like so many other the events that have you know resumed over the last uh, you know over the last year as we've as, we, as sports went from full stop, fade to black and slowly brought back to life. It's going to look different. There's no question about that. You know, certainly, we already know there's not going to be any international spectators there. Uh, I would certainly expect there to be limited to no uh, domestic spectators there as well. Uh, think kind of coaches, friends and family uh, type things, which look, the essence of the Olympic games is this gathering of athletes from across the nation, just like Baron Pierre de Coupertin thought about in 1896 when he revived uh, the Olympic games that had previously been held uh, in ancient Greece. So, but it's different, right? You don't, it's not going to be a celebratory feel, which is disappointing because, you know, we had talked about this much earlier that this could be uh, a moment for the Olympics to bring the, truly bring the world together. But we're just not ready. Uh, and certainly the host country is really not ready. As we stand right now, um, you know, the vaccination rates in the United States are somewhere in the neighborhood. I'm not Dr. Fauci here, but somewhere in the neighborhood of about 40% uh, uh, of adults have received at least one uh, shot of the vaccine, if not fully vaccinated. And in Japan, when you talk about numbers under 5%, you know, it's, it lags dramatically behind where we are, uh, you know, in the States. But the other Key date here is that the Olympic Games start in about two months. Yeah,
1: yeah. so
2: the clock is ticking really, really quickly uh, on it. Now, Ken, you, you intimately involved. You ran uh, an Olympics venue, the boxing venue, you know, way back in in LA in 1984. Um, what's your sense? I mean, you know, you ran you ran a venue, right? What's what's the
1: experience operationally going to look like? Well, you know, you asked the question that way, it would be, it would have been so much easier if all the preparation we did if all of a sudden they said there'll be no fans or there'll be few fans, right? So I, I, I hadn't thought about it in that way. So in terms of, of operationally, as long as you don't have a P and L that says you've got to bring in X dollars from from gate receipts, which which clearly has been dealt with already, then to run the individual venues is, is not going to be be difficult. I, I, I thought I thought. Uh, as you were saying, that that this new Olympic opportunity fits fits in squarely with all the COVID discussions we've been having a lot at the Global Sport Institute about this. Um, as and I, I have it with you on a couple of occasions as well. This whole reset of sport and, and how can different events and different leagues what, what what can be different about about these enterprises? And so there is a there is you know two months ago we haven't got any heads up on what it might be. There is a chance to to think about how these games should be reconfigured in terms of the delivery, in terms of the marketing, in terms of the wrapper that's that's put around them. But but it does seem that uh, unfortunately uh, Tokyo and, and Japan j- just is not well positioned to do that in the moment. That that they even though think about it, they're they're a year ahead in terms of venues being built and all that sort of stuff. So that's not going to be the issue. So. There's a chance, but we haven't seen any inkling of it. That there is, and I don't know what the I don't know what the new representation would be. I mean, you you, you, you mm. can't say the world is coming together. It's like you can say the athletes of, of the world, many of them are coming, but it's not. You know, I, I checked out. I mean, I, I decided not to go last time, and certainly am, am not going going this time. So so the world gathering is is, is not the right theme. So it's going to be interesting to see if they come up with something that works. But 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 my answer is yes. They're they're going to happen. The the one thing that could go haywire is if any major country pulls out, then you can see a, a domino kind of effect happening pretty pretty quickly.
2: So what we've seen in other sports where there's event based uh, major event based um, uh, locations is that a lot of the sites that have kind of been snubbed or received the short end or didn't fully get the benefit, whether it's, you know, NBA all-star game, uh, you you know, major league baseball all-star game last summer, you know, you, you would assume that those host cities would be kind of pushed to the front of the line. To see who would get to host again, right? You're not going to have to wait another 20, 30 years in those cases to have your shot at hosting the, the games. And the leagues and properties have done a pretty nice job in to date in saying, hey, you know, you get a do over for this. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that that's going to happen with Tokyo, uh, with 2020 and now 2021 uh, being a very different experience and all of the money and infrastructure? put into these games. I mean, you know, pre-COVID, they were over budget by a remarkable amount. And now, you know, we're even further above. Do you think that, that, that Tokyo uh, will be given a do-over so to speak?
1: No, but they they will be the, uh, the immediate past president. So if, if somehow uh, the next venue, you know, the LA Paris Paris, Paris 24 LA 28 is what we've got so far. then Tokyo is ready. I, I, you know, I don't know how many, I, I assume all the venues are going to be in some form of, of permanence, at least for that period of time. So Tokyo is, is, but but it's not unusual that, you know, for the most part, these games, the backup city is, has remained LA yeah. uh, for for a long time just because of the positioning they have of, of all these venues that are readily available. And what's going to be most interesting, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a, a future show, is that the rapid uh, uh, pace at which we'll have Olympic games in Beijing will come come right up, and there won't be the gap, you know, less of a gap than there even there was was historically. So that's that's going to be interesting to see in terms of marketing and otherwise, and, and, and something to think about in, in in that respect.
2: Yeah, and do you travel now? and Beijing? I'm sure is a topic we will get into down the road. That's already uh, you know a, a lot of controversy surrounding. Uh, surrounding Beijing, hosting the the winter games starting in February of 22. Uh, but we'll hold that off for another time. The, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, the, the biggest issue I think that w- Tokyo would have in any city you think about is not the venues themselves, it's housing. Because, you know, oftentimes, and certainly in the case of Tokyo, there's a transition plan in effect. So what happens to the athletes village after the games. And usually it's transitioned into private housing. That was a big deal for the attorneys uh, working on this to kind of extend the, the closing date, so to speak, or the start date for the tenants who were going to move in uh, by another year for where it
1: originally was. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I agree that there's, there's, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of money that's going to be sunk <laughs> and, and, and not, uh, it, although the returns have often been limited in terms of uses of housing, I mean Barcelona is probably the best example where things work work pretty well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the the final final outcome. You know, I you know I know we're getting deep into time. It, it, one topic I want to talk about with you for sure, and that's the the Northwestern Athletic Director I hire. And we just did a a report uh, at Global Sport Institute about. Athletic director hirings and the shape of the river and how do you determine who who gets this job? I, I know you follow this pretty closely and, and you uh, worked on one side or the other of a case involving in Northwestern. But Jim Phillips, the, the great AD at Northwestern, leaves. He, he ends up becoming the commissioner of the ACC, and the, the, the Northwestern takes a little time, but eventually they they name his uh, right hand guy. Mike Poliski to to the job, and then um, the minute he gets it, there are uh, protests via letter and otherwise from faculty and, and others that he is a, a named plaintiff. Uh, I'm sorry, named defendant Defend, yeah. in um, uh, uh, both a, a sexual assault. Actually, this is the way it's characterized, uh, and pending named defendant in a case involving. Racial discrimination. Both of those happened to, to involve cheerleaders. What, what, what do you think think about this whole hiring process of athletic directors? And what does is, what is the Northwestern case tell us more broadly?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question, and, and just for you know full disclosure, uh, we both have deeper connections uh, with the university. So you know, mine was uh, back when the football players at Northwestern uh, attempted to unionize. Uh, I worked uh, on behalf of the university in the n l r b regional proceedings and uh you know helped draft a brief that was ultimately uh, cited by the NLRB in refusing to, uh, shorthand way, refusing to uh, recognize the union possibilities uh, for the athletes. I did not work with Mike Poliski during that time. I worked with others at the, uh, at and I did not work with the president of the university. I worked with counsel, right? Um, your uh, disclosure is, is a simpler one in that your son, Sam, uh, was a four-year letter winner, uh, tennis player, uh, scholarship athlete at the university. Uh, and has now graduated and uh in law school. So, you know, we're both familiar with the inner workings of the athletic department. I was really surprised, Ken. It, you know, I and this is uh certainly under Jim Phillips, a really well-operated, or at least a perception at least, of being a very well-operated athletics department uh from top to bottom. My experience with them was was nothing but uh but top class and and professional in nature, um kind of like what you would expect in uh, in, you know, out of your clients. Um, the, you know, the, the missteps, uh, are ones that quite honestly, they should have seen coming. Um, you know, and it's, this is, this is a, uh, you know, the top universities in the world. Um, and you know, athletics is the front porch of the university for better or worse. Um, even at a place like Northwestern, um, and you know, my guess is that there are a lot more people who know the football coach's uh first name and and, and indeed who he is, as opposed to the president of the university.
1: Yeah. Right? Well let me let me I mean let me show my hand a little bit more here. Is is uh how close is this to the Tim Tebow situation where Tim Tebow uh gets a tryout as a a a tight end with uh the Jacksonville franchise, where his former college coach is. Now the head coach aware many others won't give that opportunity. we do we see some parallels here in, in the business of sport and how how this is operating. We do. Look, I mean this is this is
2: relationship-based in a lot of ways, right? Um, you know, I think the 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 difference with Tebow uh, is really one that it's, it seems to me at least to be a marketing play. Um, you know, and I, I, think that, you know, Tebow is a Jacksonville guy and, you know, former, uh, player for urban Meyer, um, you know, is a good kind of, uh, way to get people interested in the team. It's a branding play. Now, does anyone really expect him to make the team as a tight end, uh you know i I'm, I'm highly skeptical of of his ability to do so you never know guy's a great athlete but he's also thirty a 36 year 36 right, 33 33 whatever it is he he's not making the team yet, right yeah. i mean i think we're, you know as we sit here if he makes the team we'll be wrong on a lot of things
1: that i think we would both be stunned if he made the team yeah. but he is usurping and, and, that's, and, and that's where i mean yeah we'll again we'll give give uh Pulisky credit i mean he's he's a, a very qualified guy and and without this other stuff may have been logically the next guy up, but part, part so of what—that's what a
2: huge caveat, though. Without this other stuff, yeah. right? So, yeah, I mean, you know, is he usurping an opportunity from someone? And, and I think you could look at it as usurping an opportunity from someone uh, who would be a candidate of color, um, you know, certainly or a diverse candidate, uh, otherwise to to fill this role, yeah.
1: Right, of so, course. And, and what it amplifies is, and, and what our study looked at is women, people of color tend to have these more advanced degrees, all the all the qualifiers, but what's absent, and we and I don't think we say it outright in, in the in the study is the relationship. Hmm. And look at what relationship can trump. I mean, relationship can trump having this kind of baggage that would X you out as a candidate, even if you had a, a PhD and athletic directory. Right,
0: right.
2: But but let me ask you this, Ken, do you think it is more a, this was more of a relationship question, or do you think this was just more really lack of due diligence and understanding uh, the, you know, the, the nature of, uh, of really what we've seen in other areas, you know, this, this more activist uh, fan, you know, stakeholder in this instance, uh, setting uh,
1: combination. I mean, I, I think, you know, so Northwestern was pretty much in the know as they, they had just filed this motion to dismiss. Mm-hmm. Um, they knew of the other things coming out in, in the athletic and otherwise of the, the great relationships that, that Poliski had with, with donors. And, and maybe there was some, some pressure of sorts, mm-hmm. again, <laughs> that wouldn't happen for the person that, that's not in, in the mix. So yeah, yeah. I mean, this this comes up, and and, and probably the, the the last big topic we're going to talk about. It does come up in the, the same moment that we have the the European Super League come up, and and what puts the kibosh on that, uh, uh, other than you know, maybe it's not the greatest idea anyway, is is the fans and and fan activism that that steps up there. So so do we we want to throw that throw that third third one in, into the mix. I and mean, how, how does how does that how does that fit?
2: Yeah. You know, it's a great question. And, you know, I'm a soccer guy much more so than you are, but you're a converted, uh, soccer guy and you've certainly, as it's become a bigger business is certainly, um, you know, focused more on it. You've attended a world cup. Um, you know, you've, you've, you understand it. Um, and you know, I look at, european super league in a in a few different ways it's a really you know it's actually a really really complicated layered uh uh, idea so that appears to have met its its demise uh really 48 hours uh, after it even got launched so you know i look at european super league on paper as you know as a theoretical idea you understand it and if you look at the 12 clubs That were really, you know, the the charter members of that club, you could break them down one by one and say, hey, you know what? It made sense for this club because of X. It made sense for that club because of Y. For the six English teams, Premier League teams, which is the league that I follow most closely of the big five leagues, it made sense because in any given year, only four of them can qualify for Champions League, UEFA's tournament. So two of them are always left on the outside. This year, it looks like three of them are going to be left on the outside because a team from outside of the big six, Leicester. Right, is going to qualify for Champions League in all likelihood. And so now half of those big six are left out of the real big money-making opportunity, right?
1: Now, let, let, me, let me stop you for just a moment for those of us uh, uh, minimalist soccer fans that glaze a little bit thinking about this. What, what's, what would the U.S. or is there a U.S. equivalent of, of doing this? I mean, is there, is there a U.S. equivalent? What, what would happen here? What, what would a big announcement be here that would be similar to, to that, that big announcement?
2: Well, in a lot of ways, can we already do it, right? It's a closed league at the top level. So there's no promotion relegation in any of our major sports leagues the way that it's done in, in Europe. So it's, you know, Europe is, is in terms of the composition of a league is uh, at least in theory a lot more of a meritocracy. Right, um, and you know we look at, uh, you know the, you know we look at the the big four leagues as you know this closed fixed composition of teams. When you have an expansion happen, like we're having in the NHL, they just formally added the thirty second team, Seattle, the Kraken, which I'm sure is something we'll talk about down the road. But it's not like if you finish in last in the 31 now 32 teams that you get relegated down to the American hockey league. So, you know, it's really done to, there's a lot of different arguments around it, but there's no risk, right? So this is a way of creating what is essentially a, a no risk, um, you know, highly monetizable property for, uh, for those 12 teams, right. And, and, ostensibly to grow to 15 over time.
1: So, so it really was to, to build, what exists in Europe into what's in the States. And that is everybody has a ch- <laughs> kind of like, kind of like uh, youth trophies, Trophies. everybody has a chance to participate. I mean,
2: right, and so the idea would be of the, there'd be 20 teams in the league, 15 of them, uh, which would grow to the committed teams would be there all the time and another five, You'd still have an, an element of, of merit that could get you from outside of the five into uh, outside of the, the, tw- the, the 15 committed into the
1: remaining five. So, so, so classroom part two, why did fans hate it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of this, it really
2: started with the the six English teams, um, just enormous backlash against it. Now, on its face, and the, I mean, when I say enormous backlash from the players themselves, right, to the fans, to all the way up to Boris Johnson, to the prime minister, right? Um, so I think in, in a lot of ways, This was looked at as, in many ways, in similar to Brexit, right? That this was, in many ways, an anti-European movement, right? Um, And you know, think about soccer—that is, you know, everything from a sports perspective—held so near and dear to most fans' hearts uh, that this was, you know, another step of um, you know, jolly old England, um, you know, and, and it's, it's legacy being kind of torn, uh, asunder a bit. So this was the reaction was visceral, um, you know, from not just protests. I mean, we actually had, you know, Manchester United fans break into the stadium and, March onto the field and lead to a protest, you know, a protest that led to the, uh, the, the postponement of a match against Liverpool, right? Which is a really high profile match. And I'm a Man U fan, full disclosure. Um, and it was really remarkable to, to see that happen. Um, in, and then what but once though it started with those six, then the dominoes really started. Um and you had politicians speaking out against it. Interestingly, there are still three teams holding on to the idea and there will be litigation uh that comes out of this. It's already started uh from uh Real Madrid, who in, in, in full disclosure is a partner of ours uh at Colombia um and Barcelona. Um as well as from Juventus, the the Italian team, the, 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 as you know Ken uh, employs Cristiano Ronaldo. So those are the three holdouts. The nine other teams that have said, "Hey, we're not doing this," have already been sanctioned. Uh, they've already agreed to penalties with UEFA, where they'll pay, where they'll give up five uh, percent of their uh, of the money that they that they will or that they will earn from participating in Champions League the next go round, uh, in addition to making what is about an eighteen million dollar uh, contribution to grassroots soccer. So the the implications have been have been swift. They've been dramatic, uh, and they've been real. And now we're seeing uh, all sorts of movement or from the different governing bodies uh, about potentially drafting language that would really prevent this from happening going forward. On the flip side of that, of course, you have the remaining members of the European Super League saying, hey, we had a contract, right? <laughs> You're in breach. So there, there, there will be litigation uh, and it will be ongoing uh, for some time. But this was fan driven. This was fan driven. Fans have a voice.
1: Yeah, so 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 we're seeing that that more and more in the Northwestern uh, uh, matter. The you know it's going to be interesting if fans care about the the Tim Tebow. The, what's going to happen when he appears on on the field? But the, but the relationship piece I think is is what's important there. I mean, the yeah. idea of 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 owning, you know the Glaziers and and, and others mm-hmm. maybe may you know selling their interest because they they ultimately can't do what they they want to do and the way they can do. In the States. And I don't think it's a long shot I and mean, it's an investment they've, they've made and it's a chance they took. I, I'm just amazed at just last thing on this mm. at how they miscalculated so tremendously on this. They, yeah. Once again, this is, we talk about fine institutions, you know, anything FIFA related, I don't, I don't mean fine, but but the idea that it happens there, it, it happens at Northwestern, that, that sports is a place where something gets in the middle of of making making great decisions and, and propels you to get out there and often do these things that that aren't aren't the great decisions any uh last thoughts on that any any last topics and, and then let's let's talk about what we're going to get to uh, probably next time when we get together and uh, any topics we we want to kind of close out with
2: Yeah. I mean, I look at it finally and and think about this as a real just failure of leadership. I mean, you just how do you not read the room and understand how your stakeholders are going to feel about this? How do you not conduct any, um, you know, kind of real quietly done on the the down low, so to speak, um, focus groups on this? How do you not? How have you not reached out to your sponsors? How have you not reached out to your media partners? I know, again, you're trying to keep this really quiet. There are high level executives for a number of the teams that had no idea this was about to be announced. This was seems to be an owner driven process, and you know, I, I, and I think that if indeed that is the case, that would explain a lot of kind of the tone deafness uh, that we have seen.
1: Yeah. I mean out of all of us. To me, the key business motivator, you know, you you named a lot of good ones, was the idea that you could refresh so many contracts that are the revenue drivers, the media, merchandising, ticket prices, kind of everything. You could reset the numbers that that currently existed to to, to some degree if you if you start this this new enterprise. You have a whole, you know, a whole nother set of logos and, and and we say we're going to talk about NFTs and, and whatever yeah. else you come Intellectual up.
2: Intellectual property, yeah, right, right. That you control and that UEFA does not. Yeah. This is your own stuff. You don't have to share it with the rest of the world now, right? And if you think about it, I, from a club perspective, I do understand the business motivations for doing so. Uh, let's be very clear about that. For the individual clubs, it, in many cases, it made a lot of sense. You know, why should um, you know Real Madrid, for example, share? Uh, it's money with the, uh, with the team that comes in first in Northern Ireland, right, uh, who might participate in, in Europa League, right? So, again, you understand it, but it just was handled so poorly. Um, and fan, the fan backlash was real and ultimately led to the demise. You have to listen to your fans right? You have to be attuned to what they're doing. Maybe not in who you're picking from a personnel perspective, right? Like you may not like who's going to be your striker, right? that That's not really, you know, the the tyranny of the majority there could certainly, uh, lead you to, uh, to a bad place. That, that old mantra that, um, if you start listening to the fans pretty soon, you're going to be sitting with them, right? Um, if you're a personnel Type, um, but when it comes to these bigger decisions, you have to keep these the, your stakeholders in mind. Um, and whether it's at the university level uh, or at the, uh, the, the 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 European biggest clubs in the world uh, level, it, you have to keep it in mind. Poor
1: leadership. All right. So let's let's close out. Uh, let, let's give you Nostradamus opportunity number two. Uh, what do you think we're going to be talking about? Next week, what 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 stories are you you following that we'll get into in in more detail when we uh, reconvene?
2: Yeah, so in, in the next coming uh, coming days, we have the launch of the silver anniversary of the silver anniversary season for the WNBA. Really interested in that and having a conversation. Uh, around that topic and how far women's sports have come, but but how far they still have to go, um, and and the reasons why, uh, from where we sit, uh, that has not yet occurred, and there's many of them, uh, and in addition. Uh, We have uh, a topic that's very near and dear to uh, both of our hearts. We have another uh, age challenge, uh, age restriction challenge, this time from 15-year-old Olivia Moultrie, uh, a soccer prodigy who uh, already has a deal with Nike and would like to play in the professional league, National Women's Soccer League here in the United States. And the age restrictions prevent her from doing so, and so she has filed a lawsuit against the league th- th- Those are kind of the big things I'm keeping my eye on right now. How about you, Ken?
1: yeah no, I, you, you stole uh, at least one of mine the, that that age group that age thing is 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 a constant thorn within sports. I mean we think of the the you know way back the Spencer Haywood case, the idea of how many years you have to have to spend in school or how old you have to be. And, and I think this is really going to bring it to head. And 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 you mentioned the WNBA at at a moment where women's sports are evolving so much. Here's here's a, a young woman that, that wants to play at at this this next level that has these these age constraints that that uh, uh, have been such a problem along the way. I mean, tied tied with that too uh, with the age area is the. Uh, the failure of, of of U.S. men's tennis and, mm. and the absence of, of men in in the top thirty, and and I think a lot of that has to do with this youth issue too. So so as as the tournaments begin to come up, as we start to to watch the you know the the, the panoply of of uh, uh, global tournaments in, in tennis, this <laughs> I mean the absence of of American men. So what's that what's that going to mean? It's already been an impact. I mean, you know, John Isner is is 36 now, I think as well, you know, the, the the guys that are out there are only going to be out there so long for the women's game is it's fine. So I think that's going to be a, a topic that we'll be delving into, if not next week, in, in the coming weeks. Scott, I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to, uh, to relaunch this. We will uh, be back next week uh, to probably talking about some of the topics that we Nostradamus ourselves into. If, if not, there'll be some other uh, uh, bigger ones for us to get into. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure, Ken. The band
2: is officially
1: back together. Peaches and Herb
2: uh, nailed it, uh, reunited, and it feels so good. For Ken Shropshire, this is Scott Rosner. You've been listening to The Sports Professors. Till next time.
0: The Sports Professors podcast is brought to you by Global Sport Matters in collaboration with Columbia University. This episode was produced by Brendan Clean. Digital Communication Specialist at the Global Sport Institute. And huge thanks to our Sound Design and Editor, Sam Esparza and Big U Music. Global Sport Matters podcast is a production of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Our Manager of Marketing and Communications is Crisal Valencia. Our Manager of Events and Programs is me, Kendall Jones. And our Marketing and Communications Assistant is Natalie Skegan. To stay up to date on the latest from the Global Sport Matters team, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at Global Sport MTRS. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter on our website by clicking the envelope icon at GlobalSportMatters.com.